It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 35 in our series for 2020, and today's date is Friday, October the 2nd. First, I'll be talking to the founder of Mingle Seasoning, Jordan Evans, who has just recently launched three more seasoning flavours into 850 Coles supermarkets, a deal worth $1 million. And I'll be talking to economist Saul Leslake about what to expect in the forthcoming budget. But now, let's talk to Jordan Evans. Well, Jordan, tell us about Mingle. I mean, how did you, how did you get into this? So I started Mingle four years ago. I, at the time, was a marketing manager for a drinks company called Cappy Sparkling. Um, and Cappy was an, an all-natural beverage. So whilst working there, I started to become more and more aware of the products and the ingredients that we were putting in, I guess, manufacturers were putting into food and drinks and started to become. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. An avid label reader. And really, I guess, in my career at that time, I was really looking for the next step. My dad has had a small business for about 40 plus years. He's a plumber. And my grandpa was also a plumber. So I've grown up in small business and I always wanted to own my own business, but was looking for an idea. So uh, Mingle started one Sunday afternoon when I was cooking in my kitchen. And as I mentioned, avid label reader. So this particular day went to the pantry to grab my seasonings. And I loved a seasoning because, you know, on a Sunday Arvo, when I was meal prepping all my 
chicken and my vegetable. It just was so simple to simply shake on my protein and veg. But yeah, checked out the labels and realized that there was a whole lot of sugar, preservatives, high amounts of salt, and just ingredients in there that I didn't feel confident consuming anymore. So went down to the supermarket and was looking for a healthier alternative and also looking for a brand that spoke spoke to that, I guess, that millennial consumer. I wanted a brand that was fun. And I kind of used the comparison of Lipton Tea and T2 and just seeing in other categories what other brands have done with commodities. And I felt like that hadn't been achieved in spices. There are certain heritage, credible brands that have been around for 50 plus years. But I really felt like there was an opportunity to shake up a category that had been quite complacent. And I could see, yeah, a place for a new player to shake things up. So uh, you, what you did was you started putting in all these spices. Is that right? Yeah. So at that point, I was like, you know, why don't I test and validate this idea for a range of healthy spices that appeals to that health conscious young consumer like myself? So honestly, it was kind of like, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the TV show Breaking Bad. But it, oh, was, yes. <laughs> it was like breaking bad. I had like my garlic and my <laughs> and no joke. I was like, my neighbors we were like, what are you doing? And I had my, my mask, which I mean, four years ago was a little bit odd. Now, now these days we're all wearing one, but yeah, I started just blending a range of spices and wanting to create a range for just everyday cooking. I wanted to make cooking really simple and easy and fuss free. Um, which is what I always did on a Sunday afternoon. And so, yeah, then typical millennials, how do you launch a business? You start an Instagram account and an online store and quite ignorantly and naively just tested the market. And within, so I quit my job a year into the journey and now Mingle's been running for four years. What's extraordinary is you've just, you've just landed this $1 million deal with Coles. Is that right? That is correct, yes. Wow. And, of course, Coles is now going to uh, these local neighbourhood supermarket formats, aren't they? So it's quite convenient for them. Uh, yeah, so I, I actually I started off with Coles in those local formats called Coles Local, which is really a great way for any local supplier to start off with a big retailer. So obviously that day four years ago when I was in the spice aisle looking for a healthier alternative, I had dreams and ambitions to always be in the supermarket. But I think what has worked well is it's just been one tiny step and then the next step and then the next step. And yeah, I started off at Coles Local, which originally was one store in Surrey Hills. And then Coles obviously have ambitions to expand that side of their supermarket. So they're really supporting local brands, testing them in small format stores. And that also allows them to have confidence. And I guess the suppliers as well, because it's a huge capital outlay. Going from one Coles local store to 850 Coles stores, it's a huge step. And you have to, I guess, as the business owner as well, be ready for that manufacturing wise, capital outlay wise. So yeah, it, I kind of call Coles Local as the retail kindergarten. I learned everything. I learned everything to be able to scale. And then because the sales were going so well, it enabled the main spice buyer to have confidence that the product would also sell on a mass scale. I mean, you've got uh, your mingled products like garlic and herb and spicy Mexican and all purpose. How do you 
actually handle the manufacturing of all of that? Because you know, you're on your own. How do you do it? So I now have a team that, that helped me and also business partners. But originally, like what I said, it was we were uh, with my family blending spices in the kitchen and then it just got out of hand. So we moved to a, a third party manufacturer, a really small one. So I guess the transition is we've moved from manufacturer to mar- manufacturer dependent on our growth but uh, it's just been all about sharing recipes ensuring that the samples and the quality is maintained with suppliers and really yeah that's that's been the key for for our growth and so how much have your sales grown i guess that, that's quite an open question i'll i'll say in the context of covid19 so in the last in the last four months year on year our sales have grown 350 percent 350 percent yeah, three and five zero. Yeah, three five zero. And really, that's I, I have been chipping away at this brand for a while, but I do I do also acknowledge that that's also driven by securing quite a, a large deal with Coles. And then, given these times, people are cooking now more than ever. So I feel very grateful to be in food retail right now. And yeah, it makes me really happy that people are are cooking now more than ever and mingles kind of a tool in the kitchen kitchen to enable that well it's very very fortuitous the timing isn't it because everyone is cooking everyone is baking yeah and, and it's just extraordinary yeah no and that's real really like yes i sell seasonings but at the end of the day what gets me up in the morning is knowing that people are creating i think food is an amazing vehicle to inspire you to create and also connect like i want people gathering around that dinner table and i think food is a facilitator for that and you've also included haven't you got um, nan's dinner table questions on the back of your mingle products Yes, yeah. So that um, that's pretty special. And my family have been on this journey, you know, since day dot. And I, I wouldn't be where I am today without a supportive family. And it's pretty special that, yeah, my nan is on every mingle bottle that is in, in I guess her legacy continues to live on. So late, oh, sorry, early last year, I was, a, yeah, a single business owner that was very burnt out and very disconnected from my family and friends. And at the time, my intern, Emma, brought this amazing cookbook called Nonna to Nana. And she said, George, we should do a marketing campaign called Have You, Have you Called Your Nan? And I said, what a great idea, Em, but I haven't spoken to my nan for six months because I've been too busy. And I think, yeah, I was, I wore busy like as if it was a badge of honor. And she said, well, pick up the phone and call your nan. So I picked up the phone, called nan, invited her over for dinner on Monday night. And um, I remember that Monday night, 5pm had hit. And I was like, Emma, why, why did I commit to dinner with Nan? I'm too busy. And she said, leave the office, go. And so anyway, got home, Nan was super excited to see me and cooked her a delicious meal, sat down at the dinner table. And before we sat down, I put my phone down. And I said to my little sister, let's pretend Nan's a stranger tonight. And let's just ask her new questions as if we don't know her. And for so long, I, I thought my nan was boring. And that night, she was one of the most interesting ladies that I'd ever met. And it's pretty funny. I got present to it again last week because um, nan shared that night that in World, World War II, she had to hide in a bunker with her mum for weeks. 
and she had to come up with games. And I was like, oh my God, this is reflective of the times that we're living in now, like where we're occupying ourselves. But anyway, the connection between my nan and the questions is two weeks after that dinner, my nan suddenly passed away from a heart attack and yeah it was a moment for me to just take stock and realize that I wouldn't have had that last memory without with with my nan if I if I yeah didn't stop and make time for the simple things in life and I think Ningle's message now is about getting people to embrace cooking as a daily ritual to connect with our loved ones and not just see it as a chore and I think I was really viewing those simple things in life as a chore and they're not they're the greatest joys well jordan that's extraordinary and uh, we'll be watching Niggle with great interest and congratulations it's thank a you. wonderful story thank you thank you i appreciate it and now let's talk to economist saul eslake well saul it's like we have a budget coming up on october the 6th uh, what do you think the government should be doing in view of the recession Well, I think the government should, first of all, be continuing to provide support to households and businesses who've been adversely affected by the things that the federal and state governments have deemed it necessary to do to preserve lives, prevent the spread of the infection, and ensure that the hospital systems aren't overwhelmed by the number of cases. And so far, they've done that pretty well albeit at considerable cost, as hopefully we draw to an end the second wave of infections in Victoria and that we manage to avoid having anything else like that again, as New South Wales and the other states have been able to do. What we also need to be doing is moving away from measures that are primarily designed to maximise the survival prospects of businesses and households towards measures that will support demand for goods and services in the near term, but importantly also start to build the post-COVID economy of the years ahead. To put it differently, the Prime Minister has on a number of occasions since the pandemic began talked about the need for policy to build a bridge to the other side. The other side, I think, is now in sight. And what we've got to do, and where I think the budget ought to start, is in helping to build what is on the other side of that bridge that we have been building. And I think the measures in the budget will be an important guide to how the government's thinking about that and what the rest of us can do in the circumstances that the government's going to lay out. The Treasurer has been foreshadowing that a key part of what he proposes in the budget is likely to be bringing forward one or both of the two rounds of personal income tax cuts that were legislated after the 2019 election to come into effect on the 1st of July 22 and then on the 1st of July 24. As he says, that will put money into people's pockets, which is undeniable. It will certainly do that. My concern is, what is the government going to do to maximise the extent to which people into whose pockets he puts lots of money through bringing forward these tax cuts, will take it out and spend it in ways that will help to keep businesses going and to create jobs. And the problem is that because in ways that are hard to avoid, 
and I'm not being critical of this. It's hard to cut taxes in Australia, at least personal income taxes, without those tax cuts disproportionately benefiting the Australians who pay those taxes, which is middle and higher income earners. And while the government thinks that's justified because they do pay most of the taxes, the problem is that if you cut their taxes, they're more likely to save at least part of it or spend it or, or use it to pay down debt, which is perfectly rational from their point of view individually, but isn't actually what you want from the standpoint of the economy as a whole. So while I understand the government's motivation in wanting to make bringing forward personal income tax cuts a centrepiece of their forthcoming budget, I'm not sure that that's actually the most effective way of responding to the challenges that we have ahead of us and that there are more effective ways of maximizing the bang for the buck as it were uh, in terms of uh, not only supporting demand and jobs in the near term but starting to build the post-COVID Australian economy that I think needs to look very different from the one that we had going into this pandemic and recession. Well, what will it look like on the other side? And how should the budget well, respond? Yeah, we can't know for sure, um, not least because at this stage, we still don't really know whether we're going to get a vaccine that people will take, that will work, and that will prevent recurrences of the virus, or whether or not we have to learn in some way to live with it. And the answer to that question is going to have an important bearing on how quickly we can return to something that we might regard as normal or sustainable and how different the post-COVID world will ultimately have to be. But I think we can certainly conclude, for example, that some of the things that helped propel our economy to almost 30 years of continuous economic growth up until the present recession aren't going to be there in the same way that they were over the previous 30 years. I mean, first of all, we're not going to have the same rates of population growth that we had you know, over the past two decades leading up to the end of 2019. Australia's population grew by more than one and a half percent per annum on average, which was a full percentage point above the average population growth rate for other so-called advanced economies in the OECD. If we'd had the average advanced economy population growth during that period, then we would almost certainly have had one and possibly two recessions during that 30-year period instead of none, as we like to say. And of course, given that our international borders seem likely to remain closed at least until 30 June next year, we're not going to have any immigration in the current financial year. And even though hopefully restrictions on international movements will be lifted from the second half of next year, the government probably won't allow the immigration intake to return to what it was before the pandemic hit, because there are still likely to be on both the government's and the Reserve Bank's forecasts, lots of Australians still looking for jobs for some time, and the government won't want migrants coming in large numbers to compete with them for the smaller number of jobs that are available. So we won't, won't be getting a tailwind from population growth, nor do I think we'll be getting the sort of assistance in achieving fast growth that we've had from China over the last 30 years. And that's partly because the Chinese economy is getting closer to a point where 
uh, it's not going to need the same amount of commodities from us that it has done over the last 30 years. But even apart from that, uh, China's population has peaked and is starting to slow. And perhaps more importantly, the political dimension of our relationship has gone pear-shaped in the last couple of years. And although the Chinese don't have much alternative to buying Western Australia's iron ore or Queensland's metallurgical coal, at least not in the short term, they have alternatives to virtually everything else that we sell them uh, in the event that our government says or does something that in the eyes of the Chinese Communist Party offends the feelings of the Chinese people, whatever that means, and it means what the Chinese Communist Party wants it to mean. And so, you know, we're clearly not going to be enjoying the same benefits from our unusual by advanced economy standards economic relationship with China and indeed it's possible they could be inflicting on us some net harm. So the second key driver of our pre-COVID economic performance isn't going to be there. And third, uh, I doubt, indeed I'd hope, that we don't get the same impetus to economic growth from almost never-ending increases in house prices and household debt that we had between the early 90s and the peak in 2017. Uh, you know, I would hope that we don't see a big fall in property prices either, because that would clearly have some adverse economic consequences that would make managing the challenges we already have even more difficult. But nor do I want to see house prices going up at double digit or even high single digit rates year after year, thus extending even further the decline in home ownership rates that we've already seen, particularly for people under the age of 45 over the last 20 years. Which means that the post-COVID economic outlook is going to have to rely much more on some combination of good economic policy and productivity growth at the level of individual firms and industries than it has done for most of the pre-COVID era. You know, between the recession of the early 90s and the global financial crisis, productivity growth accounted for about 52% of the increase in Australia's GDP, and the rest came from increases in the supply of labour, that is, more people in the workforce working more hours than they had done. But in the five years between the end of the mining boom and the onset of this pandemic, productivity growth only accounted for 28% of the growth in real GDP and the rest of it came from faster rates of population and employment growth and from people working more hours if they were in employment. And we can't repeat that pattern in the post-COVID world, especially if we want to return to unemployment rates that we would want to have of 5% or less. So uh, the policy mix has to be different and we need to be looking at different things. In particular, although I don't pretend that this is the only solution, I think we've got to start moving away from policies that have as one of their unintended side effects propping up what in other countries are sometimes called zombie firms. That is, firms which are poorly performing, are low productivity, are probably not creating any new jobs, and which would probably have gone out of business if it wasn't for the ultra-low interest rates that we now have, 
and other government support measures, such as the suspension of requirements to service debt, and the fact that at least for the time being, it's not illegal to continue trading while you're insolvent, as it normally is under the corporation's law. You know, those measures have been necessary to minimize the fallout for unemployment while the government had shut down the economy for health reasons. But as we move out of that phase, the longer we keep capital tied up in zombie companies, the less we're going to be able to deploy capital to the sustainable companies and sectors of the future. The more that we keep workers working in jobs that are ultimately not going to be there when these supports are removed, the longer it is that those workers aren't going to be able to move into skills, into areas where they'll be more productive and where they'll get higher pay. And in particular, I think to help build that roadmap for the future, what we're going to have to move away from is the idea of preferentially treating small businesses just because they're small, which is something that has crept into the policy framework over the last five years, something which has done nothing to boost employment or innovation, because although people like to claim that small business is the engine room of the economy, and some people, particularly in the coalition, seem to believe that there's something inherently more noble about running a small business than there is about working for a big one or for a government agency or a university or for a not-for-profit. The truth, as revealed by ABS statistics, is that small business has accounted for 13% of the increase in private sector employment over the past five years, during which they've had these preferential tax breaks, and that the overwhelming majority of employment growth has actually occurred at medium-sized or big businesses, not small ones. Likewise, ABS data show that small businesses are less likely to engage in any form of innovation than medium-sized or big ones. What we ought to be doing is giving tax preferences and other support to new businesses rather than small ones. Now, of course, most new businesses will be small by definition, but new businesses are going to do things almost without trying to that we actually want businesses to do in the post-COVID world. They're going to create jobs. They're going to innovate. They're going to be in sectors that have a more sustainable future than small businesses. And moreover, there's nothing a new business can do to stop itself becoming an old one other than going out of business, which means that preferencing new businesses avoids the sort of perverse incentives that we know occur when businesses stop growing just below the point at which the tax law ceases to define them as small. And as I say, if we want the sort of economy that I think we're going to need to have in the post-COVID world, then what we ought to be supporting is new businesses, not small ones, just because they're small. Well, that would be quite, uh, quite an issue for the budget. And uh, so, Leslie, thank you very much for your time. That's a pleasure, Leon. Good to Thank talk you. to you. So what's happening in the news? Well, investors are growing more jumpy about the risk of a disputed US presidential election, stepping up preparations for a potential period of market volatility as the costs of insuring against turbulence rise. Futures tied to the VIX volatility index, a measure of the expected choppiness of a US stock market based on derivative prices, have long reflected investor concerns that the result could become contentious. This has led to what some traders term a volatility kink 
around the November vote. But that kink has grown more pronounced since President Donald Trump indicated he might not concede if he were defeated in the November 3rd election. Futures markets suggest that investors now fret that any turmoil could last for several months. Analysts say this represents an extraordinary level of nervousness, given that previous votes have rarely caused market upsets. And Daniel Andrews' cautious easing of the COVID-19 lockdown in Victoria has failed to satisfy business owners and Prime Minister Scott Morrison, who argue the Victorian Premier needs to move more quickly to revive the state's economy and protect thousands of jobs. Retail shops, cafes and restaurants, gyms, wedding venues and tennis and golf clubs are among sectors to cry foul over Mr Andrews' revised reopening plan revealed on Sunday, a day after his government reels from the shock resignation of his health minister, Jenny Mikakos. Mr Andrews faced more pressure over hotel quarantine this week as the state's inquiry wrapped up and the Prime Minister receives his independent review of hotel quarantine from Jane Holton. The review singles out New South Wales in contrast to Victoria for leading the pack in successful hotel quarantine. Victoria's revised reopening plan allows an additional 30,000 workers, bring the total to 127,000, to return to work from Monday, largely across the manufacturing and construction sectors, as well as abattoirs, warehouses and distribution centres. Sole gardening and landscape workers will also be allowed, but business owners and industry groups warned the changes were too modest. Prime Minister Scott Morrison acknowledged in a statement with Victorian Federal Ministers Josh Frydenberg and Greg Hunt the small but important step taken, but said quicker action was needed. And temporary visas will be extended, and welfare recipients offered incentives to take farming jobs, as a new report warns of a critical labour shortage. The upcoming federal budget will allow job seeker and youth allowance recipients to earn up to $300 per fortnight from farm work before welfare payments are reduced. Reforms will also allow backpackers, Pacific Islanders and seasonal workers able to extend their temporary visas and the age limit of 30 on the working holiday maker visa will be scrapped. A report from consultancy EY found growers expected to fill 6 out of 10 short-term roles in the next 6 to 12 months as travel restrictions reduce the number of available workers. It comes as a range of inquiries investigate claims of exploitation of workers in seasonal agricultural labour. An income tax cuts alone in the forthcoming budget won't be enough to avoid the cash crunch Australia faces as it emerges from the coronavirus pandemic, analysts have warned. Deloitte Access Economics' 2020 budget monitor found the budget had been badly bent but not broken by COVID-19. The JobKeeper and JobSeeker program were particular standouts, with poverty going down in Australia at the same time it was rising in other parts of the world. Money hit people's pockets faster than during the global financial crisis, and Australia's success against the virus reduced the cost of its emergency measures. And while around 830,000 jobs were lost when COVID-19 hit, approximately half of those jobs have been reinstated as the country reopens. However, more than 3 million jobs are relying on the JobKeeper wage subsidy, which starts to roll back from Monday. But as government supports are wound back, superannuation money dries up and mortgage and rent moratoriums end. The nation would face a cash crunch in the next six months. And the Morrison government will pour $800 million into measures it says are designed to help businesses take advantage of digital technologies. But most of the money is dedicated to boosting its online services to facilitate doing business and to crack down on corporate fraud. Of the $800 million, about $420 million will be used to fulfil the 2018-19 budget promise to amalgamate the Australian Business Register and the 31 registers administered by the Australian Securities Investments Commission, allowing businesses to quickly view, update and maintain their business registry data in one location. The Australian Taxation Office will operate in the new super registry, which will provide a powerful foundation to manage fraud and reduce red tape. 
Similarly, another $257 million will be used to improve access to government services by expanding the Digital Identity Program, an opt-in system that already gives 1.6 million people and 1.2 million businesses a single and secure way to use government services online. As well as expanding access to services such as MyGov and Welfare Payments, this funding will integrate the Digital Identity Program with the Director Identification Number, a lifetime identification number for company directors. The DIN makes it much easier to start a business, enabling someone to do it in as little as 15 minutes rather than weeks. And global airline traffic is now expected to fall 66% this calendar year compared with 2019, the International Air Transport Association said. It previously forecast a 63% drop. The IATA said global domestic traffic, revenue passenger kilometres, fell 50.9% in August, a mild improvement compared with 56.9% decline in July. Domestic capacity, available seat kilometres, fell 34.5% and load factor dropped 21.5 percentage points to 64.2%. The data was much more grim for Australia. Domestic traffic fell 91.5%, domestic capacity collapsed 81.2% and load factor collapsed 37.1%. In terms of international travel, global traffic fell 75.3% overall, with capacity seeking 63.8% while the load factor plunged to 27.2% to an all-time low for August of 58.5%. An iconic brand, RM Williams, may end up in Australian hands after mining billionaire Andrew Forrest's investment vehicle lobbed an unsolicited bid for the bootmaker, just as private equity firm TBG Capital's interest was starting to wane. Mr Forrest's private investment arm, Tatarang, is understood to have put in the offer with RM Williams' owner, Earl Catterton, and its bankers, Goldman Sachs. The move by the mining billionaire comes weeks after private equity firm TPG entered exclusive talks to buy the boot and apparel maker for about $200 million. but rumours are swirling that TPG is losing interest and may pull out. With a paper wealth of $22.1 billion, Mr Forrest is now calculated as Australia's second wealthiest person after shares in his iron ore miner Fortescue Metals have surged about 80% since March, and he'll receive a $1.16 billion dividend cheque on October the 2nd. The owners of the iconic RM Williams had hoped to offload it for about $500 million last year and launched a sale campaign through Goldman Sachs. And Dreamworld's parent company, Ardent Leisure, has been fined $3.6 million over the deaths of four people on the Thunder River Rapids ride in 2016. Ardent Leisure pleaded guilty to three breaches of workplace health and safety laws. The maximum penalty for each breach is $1.5 million, $4.5 million in total. Cindy Lowe, Kate Goodchild, Luke Dorset, and his partner, Ruzi Aragi, died when their craft collided with an empty raft and flipped in October 2016. And Bank of Queensland has taken a sharply dimmer view of the potential economic recovery out of the coronavirus pandemic as it books a $175 million provision for souring loans following the increased probability of downside and severe case scenario in its modelling. The ASX-listed lender revealed $175 million worth of souring loans on its books after it modelled the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on employment, falling house prices and the increased duration of the economic downturn. In an update to the market on Tuesday, the Queensland-based lender said the loan impairment for its 2020 financial year would equate to 37 basis points of gross loans. The impairment was heavily weighted to the back end of the year, with just $10 million of pre-tax booked in the first half compared to $123 million on the latter half. The bank's base case scenario, which it views with a 75% likelihood, involves GDP shrinking 6% over the year through June, before bouncing back by 5% over the coming year and 4% in 2022. And because people are drinking out of cans and bottles with the lockdown, 
Visi, which has been operating for 72 years, has achieved revenue growth in August in the middle of a pandemic that would be the envy of most software startups. The manufacturing and recycling giant owned by Anthony Pratt alongside his sisters, Heloise Pratt and Fiona Gaminda, recorded revenue growth in August of 28% on July and 33% compared to August 2019. Mr Pratt said this may be a busy record and was certainly the highest month-on-month growth achieved since he'd taken over the business after his father's Richard's death in 2009. He predicted in last month's edition of Frontline Fallout that August would be a big month as the impact of Vizzy's acquisition in July of five glass factories, formerly owned by Ohio-based Owens, Illinois, was felt for the first time. However, he wasn't quite expecting a 33% revenue lift, given that OI had turned over $754 million in calendar 2019, dwarfed by about $7 billion of sales of Vizzy. The combined businesses had been forecast to turn over about $8.5 billion in calendar 2020. However, Mr Pratkin describes a multiplier effect that may see that exceeded. And China's Ministry of Commerce has targeted Treasurer of Wine Estate, Casella, and Australian Swan Vintage as part of its dumping investigation into Australian wine exports, with the three companies given 37 days to complete export questions. The companies were formally advised of the move on Monday. Under China's processes, a final decision on the level of any dumping duty would be imposed in 12 to 18 months' time, or by August the 18th of the earliest next year. The government then applies a weighted average of the duties charged against the three companies, which will apply to all Australian wine exports. The process is a lengthy one, as reflected by the department's investigations into Australian barley in December 2018, before hitting it with 80% tariffs in May this year. The timetable puts some context into a perceived ramping up of tension between the two countries. While the three companies notified will do the heavy lifting for the Australian industries, others can participate. China is a crucial market for TWE accounting for 17% of sales and 35% of its earnings. And Amazon is primed for a pre-Christmas haul. Amazon Australia's delayed Prime Day sale will arrive next month as the online shopping BM faces increasing competition from a vanguard of Australian retailers that have struck newfound success online. The sales event begins locally on October the 13th, but as the pandemic has continued, many Australian shoppers have become increasingly comfortable buying online from traditional bricks and mortar stores. Still, it won't have its own way. Plenty of Aussie chains are increasingly competent at online sales. Chains such as JB Hi-Fi and Adairs have witnessed stunning online growth in recent months. Amazon also has to contend with local online marketplaces like Kogan.com. And the A2 Milk Company has cut 2021 sales and earnings guidance following a collapse in the Adaju market in Australia due to COVID-19 restrictions. In a training update on Monday, the company said it now expected December half revenues of $725 million to $775 million, down from $807 million in the first half of 2020, and full-year revenues of $1.8 billion to $1.9 billion, compared with revenues of $1.73 billion in 2020. The earnings before interest tax depreciation and amortisation margin was expected to fall to 31% from 31.7% in 2020. The guidance implies full-year EBITDA between $558 million and $589 million, up from $549.7 million achieved in 2020, but well below market forecasts of around $662 million. And IFM Investors Global Head of Infrastructure, Kyle Mangini, says the economics of renewable energy now really stack up after the investment group teamed up with commodities trader Trafigura Group to target US $2 billion, that's $2.9 billion Aussie, of global wind, solar and power storage projects. 
IFM, which manages 65 billion in infrastructure assets, including Melbourne, Brisbane, Darwin and Alice Springs airports, will save money by powering its assets with renewable energy. A new company, a 50-50 joint venture named Nala Renewables, has a somewhat aspirational target of investing US $2 billion in renewable projects over the next five years, Mr Mangini said. And Telstra has released the details of its much-anticipated 5G fixed wireless product, confirming it will use the fifth-generation mobile technology to deliver a high-speed broadband alternative to the national broadband network. The move, which will put Telstra in direct competition with the MBN, has raised the prospect of a dispute over a non-compete agreement signed by Telstra and MBN Co. Telstra's 5G home internet product, Deliver Over Mobile Network, through a wireless modem, will offer download speeds of between 50 and 300 megabits per second for $85 a month, with a monthly data allowance of 500 gigabytes. The pricing and speeds mean it will offer similar value to the MBN's 50 and 100 megabytes plans. Telstra said it would initially be an invitation-only launch, targeting customers in areas where 5G coverage is strong and fixed-line alternative is subpar. Telstra said it would scale up the offer as 5G continues to evolve and when millimetre wave is available. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Erin Brindley, National Programs Manager at Generation Australia, on tackling the growing level of youth unemployment. And I'll be talking to economist Nicholas Gruen about creating better models for forecasting for economics for coronavirus. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.